suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. A small group of meerkats, particularly small group tonight because it's just two of us. <laughs> Paul, how are you? I'm good. Trevor, how are you? I'm going well. So yes, if you're new to this podcast, it's a podcast about news and politics and sex and religion. We sit here in our privileged little outpost in the leafy western suburbs of Brisbane and uh, talk about the world and what's going on and give our opinion. It's what we do. Yeah, and you might agree or disagree with it. Possibly tonight you might disagree a lot, unfortunately. It's a hot topic tonight. It is. So we're going to talk about the protests that have been going on, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests in Australia and the ins and outs of all of that and what's good about it, what might be bad about it, what might be misplaced, um, see where we end up. Um, before we do, just quickly, Paul, last week we were talking about spiked. <laughs> we were. And we got into a heated discussion. A little and, bit heated. Yes. And, and, it, so, and we let it go on too long. Apologies to the listeners Yes, for that. but apology to you, uh, Paul, because oh. I've been referring to spike as having um, been, being, as the phrase I've been use, using is, is that they are funded by the Koch brothers. And in hindsight, that's incorrect. That they're, because that has an, a connotation of constant and, and contemporary. That was my problem. As you, I think you well understand my problem yes. was the inference that they perpetually and continuously re- receive Indeed. funding. So I, I, in this little struggle session <laughs> that we're having now, for you going to struggle confe- with yourself? I, I confess to my sins. Okay. I humbly apologise. Okay. I wish I, I had uh, some holy water to throw over. Indeed, you. but I, but I still maintain my objections to spiked for for, for oh. those same reasons. But we'll come to that okay. another time. But we, so we won't um, we won't dwell on that. But um, no, when it comes not. to spiked in future, I'll be careful about how I refer to the donations I receive. Right. Okay. Um, Oh boy. Uh, so in the past week, we've seen uh, a lot of protests in Australia to mm. do with um, a continuation of the Black Lives Matter protests Indeed. that are occurring in America and now all over the world. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, how something which seems to be a domestic issue in the United States has such, uh, what's the word, such traction in other countries. Mm. Very interesting. So um, I wrote a little bit of a, a piece here to begin with, dear listener, um, to, our, to our left-leaning friends, um, are you prepared to have a few ideas challenged? And um, yeah, because on the whole, particularly with myself, you might find you've probably agree- I've probably agreed with you, you've probably agreed with me on 90% of the time. And we might have a few disagreements on this one, so we'll see what happens. But just um, just be prepared to listen to the arguments is is what I'm asking. And it's this is un, this is uneasy and uncomfortable, Paul. Is it? It is to breach you know to broach this subject of 
Indigenous affairs again. I find it uncomfortable because it's okay. Because you know? traditionally, people on the left, and I think you place yourself on the left, yes, um, normally fall into lockstep with whatever the you know the group think on that topic is, don't they? Yes. So and, if you're and out you of lockstep, you don't. I know. So when you when you're out of lockstep, it feels uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. It would, and because uh, so we'll see how far out of lockstep I am. <laughs> like you, Trevor, I, I also don't always go along with the group thinking. I sometimes find my friends who, on the whole, I would say would be left of centre, Yes. on the whole, uh, sometimes asking me if I'm right wing. And I'm like, right, right wing? Right. How could you say that? You know? Haven't they ever heard of the word libertarian? <laughs> well, as we know now, there's something called a left libertarian, but... Um, I find it quite frustrating to have to explain myself every time I I, I express a sentiment mm-hmm. that is sort of out of that group of core yes. ideas that yes. the left think are their sort of yes. you know main yes because if nothing else property. we pride ourselves on addressing issues on their merits and not because exactly uh, of adherence to a particular group ideology exactly so here we go so. Um, so it is uncomfortable and little voices don't go there, but a lot has been said that doesn't make sense, so we have to. Yeah. Um, bit of an introduction. Last week we compared cultures. So we were comparing obedient, community-spirited Asian cultures versus sort of individual, freedom-loving Western cultures. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody would have batted an eyelid at that uh, distinction that we were making. They might have disagreed with some of it, but... I don't think anybody viewed it as racist, and no. um, that was an example. Do you think where, they should have? Well, no, but it was an example where it was a common understanding that cultures are different, mm. and people will behave differently based on their culture. And observing those differences doesn't make you, and you know, yep. antagonistic towards those people or mm. a racist. Mm. And in some cases certain cultural features were seen as an advantage when battling the coronavirus and other cultural features were seen as perhaps a disadvantage when battling the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't to speak poorly of people as such. It was just a commentary on... on Observable differences. Indeed. So uh, so that's sort of one thing to think about. Mm -hmm. Another one is um, that... um, in the past week with the Black Lives Matter protests, um, some of that has focused on incarceration rates and the plight of Indigenous Australians. Mm-hmm. Dear listener, did you stop to consider the cultural differences and the role that that might be playing in the whole scheme of things? Did any of our uh, public commentators that we've seen the last few days, did they talk about culture, Trevor? I haven't heard a single word. Not one. I haven't culture. heard one either. Not one word about culture playing a part in this um, incarceration of uh, Indigenous brothers and sisters. And yet, Not one word. If we were talking about specific uh, social problems mm. in the mainstream society like that we live in, mm. It wouldn't be at all unusual to talk about the cultural, mm. um, what would you say, the cultural roots or the cultural background of the behaviour, whatever it was. Mm. Would that be surprising to you? Look, often it just doesn't get deep enough for that, mm, but uh, it's not. Uh, it, it's noticeably absent. And, you know, of 
course, we've been reading lots and we've been watching lots and it's been absent in my view. The other thing is last week we looked at statistics and how they could be manipulated and how correlation is not causation and how statistics are sometimes a shadow of the real information. When hearing statistics this past week about Aboriginal deaths in custody, did you stop and consider, dear listener, <laughs> uh, if they'd been presented without distortion? Did you look at a statistical here one and think, really? Um, that sort of Is that true? Is that right? Does it sound a bit odd? Um, also, two weeks ago we spoke about Chinese history, the Cultural Revolution and the Red Guard. Do you remember we spoke about struggle sessions? Yes, indeed. Mm. In general, the victim of a struggle session was forced to admit various crimes before a crowd of people who would verbally and physically abuse the victim until he or she confessed. Mm. Struggle sessions were sometimes conducted in sports stadiums where large crowds would gather if the target was well known. If you watched Q&A last night, did you get the uncomfortable feeling that you were witnessing a modern-day struggle session? I did. Me too. Mm. It was one of the first things that came to mind. Yeah. So with those introductory thoughts, um, also when it comes to Indigenous matters, we did a podcast in episode 213 and we also talked about it a fair bit in episode 160. So look them up if you haven't heard them already because if we skip over an idea or miss something entirely, in your opinion, we might have covered it previously. <laughs> so, um, so bear that in mind. Well, we might have to cover it in a future podcast. <laughs> That's right. Right. Um, let's, let's, before we talk about things and the issues and whatever, I think we need to get the facts, some facts out there, first mm -hmm. of all. Uh, Was is in the chat room and Was loves a good fact. So, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. Bearing in mind, dear listener, when it comes to facts and statistics, what do we know already? There, there are lies, damn lies and statistics, that if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. <laughs> <laughs> that the plural of anecdote is uh, is not fact. <laughs> and people who think numbers don't lie have never massaged the numbers on a model. So these are all the things that we learnt from the other week. I've got in front of me here a um, an extract from a report from February 2019. And what it was doing was looking at the Indigenous Deaths in Custody Royal Commission that occurred 25 years previously. And just in passing, when referring to that Royal Commission that occurred 25 years ago, uh, it said that the Royal Commission in 1991 found Indigenous people were no more likely than non-Indigenous people to die in custody, but were considerably more likely to be arrested and imprisoned. So even back in 1991, um, Indigenous people were more likely to be arrested and imprisoned, but once you're in there no more likely to actually die in custody. Did, is, did anybody say that in the mainstream media other than, unfortunately, people like Andrew Bolt and, and the likes? Like, this is one of the problems that the left has been obscuring some of this information and you can only get it from right-wingers like Andrew Bolt. It's really, really annoying to have to quote Andrew Bolt and refer yeah. to guys like that and, and the left silent on that matter. And, you know, they give him opportunities mm. to, to make them sound, to make them look dishonest when they use figures like, you know, more than 400 deaths in custody since 
when is it? Since, yeah, since the Royal Commission or whenever. They, yeah, they're coming up with a bit figure of 400. Yep. And yet the figures we see show that well more than half died of either natural causes or suicide. Now, obviously, you know, there shouldn't be any suicides happening in, uh, in custody, but as we know, they do happen regardless of where the people come from. Mm. And the the staff can't always, or maybe don't want to always, but can't always uh, prevent them. Mm. So, and I saw Linda Burney, the MP, you know, on being interviewed, and and she was saying how disgraceful it was that more than four hundred Indigenous people had died in custody. What she didn't say, what she didn't bother saying, was that most of them died of natural causes or suicide, mm. not brutality by the staff yeah and that but that was the inference and i think she and others have deliberately thrown that number out there without clarifying it and without quantifying it mm. i think it's um deliberate i think it's a a mischievous use of, of a number i agree I, I, a lot of people have quoted this figure of just over 400 deaths in custody and i've got up on the screen a table from this report it's an official government report, and it shows at the time that they printed this. So this was from the period 1991 through to 2015, and during that time, Indigenous deaths in custody were 393. The non-Indigenous deaths in custody were 1,651. Um, so what it showed was that if you're looking at the proportions of people in custody, um, in actual fact, Indigenous people are slightly less likely to um, to die than non-Indigenous people. And I've also got up on the screen another graph which shows that from about 2003 onwards, that's been the case, that um, bearing in mind you're more likely to be in prison if you're Indigenous, but once you're in there, your chances of dying are actually less, slightly, than a non-Indigenous person. So none of that's come out in... And, and this is not hidden away in some obscure blog. This is official government data that, that paints a different picture. And Even and, the young and, man that a lot and, of them are mentioning, his name was Dumagai... Don Guy or something? Yeah. No? I don't know which one you mean. There's been a few of them, obviously. Well, he, he was one of the more recent ones, I think, and right. his mother was in the audience apparently at the Q&A session right. on Monday evening. Um, I read somewhere, and I forget where it was now, that he didn't necessarily die of police brutality. He died in custody, mm-hmm. but the coroner's report said he had a, a bunch of health conditions, mm. including diabetes. He was hyperglycemic when he died. He had been eating a sweet biscuit or something, which I don't know whether that was part of the issue he had with the staff, but uh, he, uh, you know, it's, it's unclear mm. that he died of and, and, ill treatment. And the point is, no doubt there have been deaths in custody no that, are, that are inappropriate and a racist-based, for example. Absolutely. Outrageous the, the, neglect in some cases point, and brutality. The point is how systemic is it? How common is it? And if the advocates in this sphere are not honest and open about the figures, mm. it makes you distrust so much it about does. what they say. So They lose credibility. Mm, so I'll just bring up again on the, um, on the screen 
in, again, the same report uh, talks about how did these people die and the majority of Indigenous deaths during that period were due to natural causes, 58%. Yeah. Hanging was 32%. Uh, 5% were due to drugs, 4% due to external trauma. Um, so the – and the – uh, non-Indigenous deaths, I don't have it here, but was a very similar, um, the, the hanging rate, for example, I've got that on the screen. If you're looking at it, dear listener, that graph shows a uh, percentage of prisoners who died from hanging who were Indigenous versus non-Indigenous. And, you know, the graph lines track each other. Bear in mind all those statistical things we said at the beginning, dear listener, about whether you trust um, <coughs> statistics and figures. Bear all that in mind. But... It's an interesting point. So, so why hmm. were the people in Australia protesting? Is what I'd like to know. Well, let's uh, let me get a few more facts out, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into the okay. reasons. Because obviously, it was a mixed bag why people were were, uh, were doing that. So, um, just another one I've got here. Um, uh, let me just see. Police brutality was another graph. I just well, another chart I just got, which was from Wikipedia. So, so that was deaths in custody that we just talked about. If we're just talking about deaths by law enforcement, killings by law enforcement agencies, and uh, there's another chart here which um, you can look at in the show notes or you look at on the screen if you're watching the video. We Do you have a definition of custody? Because I heard somebody say that if you have been stopped on the street by a police officer, mm-hmm. And you run away mm. and run in front of a bus and you're killed. Mm. They, for some reason, count that as a death in custody. Uh, I don't know. That's what I heard. Yeah, I don't so, know. People can look at the links yeah. and go and see what the what the references were. I think if you're in a watch house or if you're in a jail, you're in custody. Uh, <laughs> this one, death by law enforcement, would have been, I would assume, basically police killing people in the act of trying to catch them. So if we're looking at different countries, let's look at somewhere like, um, this is from 2010 through to 2019, uh, number of deaths per year committed by law enforcement agencies. Um, if we go to somewhere like Canada, it was 28, 29, 23, 23, 24, 36, 41, 36, and then no information for the last two years. We go to somewhere like Germany, 6, 6, 8, 8, 7, 10, 11, 14, 11. These are deaths per year. That's quite low, isn't it, for a country of Germany's size? Mm. Um, New Zealand, 02020333314. Australia, 36413054. No information, no information. Um, United States, 1,276, 1,350. 1,649, 1,649, 1,456, 1,767, 1,657, there's some statistics about just general yeah. police brutality, which would indicate that Australia is 
kind of around the ballpark of what you'd expect and for a country like probably us. not a country that you think has a particular problem mm. with police killing uh, civilians. Mm. So the next thing then is incarceration rates that we need to look at. So this one, um, I'm uh, this one was a tricky one to get incarceration rates. I was looking at lots of stuff. Dear listener, I wasted way too many hours looking at incarceration rates and the number of people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, in jail in four countries, Australia, USA, Canada and New Zealand. And I distinctly remember looking at a Guardian article which purported to fact-check Noel Pearson, and it was coming up with statistics that I just couldn't reconcile. And... um, A figure is used in this, dear listener, where they talk about deaths per 100,000. Sometimes that means deaths per 100,000 people in the population. Sometimes it means deaths per 100,000 adults in the population. So if you are going to fact-check me on this one, just be really careful when you're (laughs) looking at stuff as to whether they're talking about deaths per population or deaths per adults in the population. Anyway, let's look at Australia, 25.5 million of us. The Indigenous population estimated to be about 840,000, which is about 3.3% of our population. Prisoners in our prison system, 43,000. So the prisoners per 100,000 is 168. For every 100,000 Australians, there is 168 in prison. That's total. Yep. So that figure is very comparable to Canada and New Zealand. Canada is 112, New Zealand is 215. We're 168. So in terms of how many people on average do we have in jail based on our population, kind of around the same mark. When you look at Indigenous prisoners as a percentage of the jail population, our Indigenous prisoners are 28.6% of the jail population. It's a in, lot. In Canada, the native uh, Indian population, 30%. Wow. In New Zealand, the Maoris are 52.8%. That doesn't include islanders. That's pure Maoris. Maoris make up 52.8% of the jail population. And what's their proportion of the total population? 165 so similar to the black population in America. Yes. And the black population of America is 12.3% of the population and they are 40% of the jail population. So oh. you can it's sort of easier to you can see it on the screen dear listener or you can look at it in the show notes. But when we talk about the number of the when you're looking at our jail population, uh, Australia's 28.6% are indigenous in America, black uh, African Americans 40% Canada, 30%. New Zealand, 52%. Um, And when you break it into sexes, it's actually even higher for Aboriginal females. Indeed. And then there's an Indigenous rate per 100,000, and New Zealand would be actually the lowest because they've got a high Maori population, so 676, Canada, 800, Australia, 1465, and the USA, 2,300. So it seems to me that... um, those rates that we have are in the ballpark of other countries similar to us. Yep. 
Uh, make what you will of those statistics. Bearing in mind everything you've learned about statistics from this podcast in the last couple of weeks. So, But they certainly don't sort mm. of present Australia as anything unusual. Indeed. So at this point, if you wanted to rail against Australia as being a bunch of fucking racists, you'd have to say the same about New Zealand, who are often lauded as having um, great really come race to terms relations. with their yes. Maori population Indeed. and have made great strides yep. and are looked on as sort of having achieved well and above Australia. Um, and they pride themselves on yeah. that, the so, New Zealanders, don't they? And very similar to the Canadians. So mm-hmm. if people want to say, oh, you arsehole racist Australians, you probably would say the same about New Zealand and Canada if you were to say that, if you think that's justified. Right. Um, let me see. What else do we need to say about statistics before we get on to um, – oh, yes, let's talk about um, – Let's talk about the nature of the offences. Yes. That so was why it. are people in jail? Indeed. Mm. And they're not the same, generally speaking, are they? Uh, no. For Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Mm. They're a little, little bit different. So, again, from the 2016 report, this is a government report. It's not somebody's blog post that they've just dreamt <laughs> up. It's an Australian government report. The most common offence or charge for which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners were in custody were acts intended to cause injury, 33%, followed by unlawful entry, uh, 15%. Um, For the non-Indigenous prisoner, the most common charge was uh, illicit drug offences, 17%, and then acts intended to cause injury, 17%. So... Big difference there in terms of the nature of the offences. Um, so violence and stealing uh, mm. against drugs and, and violence. Correct, yep. But quite high with the violence on the Indigenous side, 33% are in there yeah. for violent acts intended to cause injury. That fits a stereotype that we would have in our mind, it I does, would have thought. Sadly. Yep. Okay, um, what else have we got here? Oh, let's talk about, I'll bring this one up as well, homicide. So the distribution of homicide incidents. An Indigenous offender on an Indigenous victim, uh, 765. This is from 1990 to 2011. So this is about a 20-year period. That's okay. 765 convictions, is Yes. It? Yep, this is the number. Indigenous offender on Indigenous victim, um, 765. An Indigenous offender on a non-Indigenous victim, 230. So vast majority of Indigenous people convicted of homicide were committing the offence against other Indigenous people. If you look at a non-Indigenous offender on an Indigenous victim, 101. If you look at a non-Indigenous offender on a non-Indigenous victim, 4,522. So largely the non-Indigenous offenders were killing non-Indigenous victims and not many Indigenous. So I pretty much how- people were sticking to their own tribe when they were killing each other. I wonder how many of those are domestic violence incidents. I wonder. I, I don't know. So, um, And if you look at the American statistics, a kind of a similar thing happens in terms of blacks and whites in the sense that they tend to be killing each other of the same colour, if you like. Right. Um, 
let me just see here. And again, still from this government report, when they look at the reasons for the high imprisonment rates of Indigenous Australians, um, the reports are basically saying that there's two categories of reasons. The first category is socioeconomic disadvantage and the second category is structural bias or discriminatory practices within the justice system. That, this is why people end up in, in jail generally. And when it comes to socioeconomic factors, there are four main criteria that mean you might more likely to end up in jail. Poor parenting, particularly child neglect and abuse, poor school performance and leaving school early, unemployment and drug and alcohol abuse. And basically the Indigenous community, unfortunately, is suffering in those four categories more than the non-Indigenous. Mm. Um, there we go. Um, the other thing that it said in this report was um, a comment that I thought was interesting. High rates of imprisonment may lead to the idea that incarceration is a rite of passage within Indigenous communities. As Chief Justice Wayne Martin of the Supreme Court of Western Australia explained, quote, for kids in the leafy western suburbs of Perth, being sent to detention would be a horrendous prospect. It would be unthinkable. It would bring shame on their family. It would be just their worst nightmare. For Aboriginal kids, it does not have the same effect because their cousin is in there, their brother has been in there, and their father has been in prison. It just does not hold the same threat, the same effect, and the same effective sanction. Tragically, in some communities, Aboriginal kids see it just see it as just what you do. One of the things that you do as part of growing up that you end up in detention or prison because so many family members have been there. It's ter- terribly sad. Mm. I've also heard people say that uh, in some cases they they feel life is a little bit better in prison because they get regular meals, they have mm. a, a you know a clean, dry bed to sleep on, mm. um, and and that goes for uh, non-indigenous people as well. Mm. Ross in the chat room asked if it was a home brew, and it's uh, no. it's the twelfth man brought this. Thank you, yes. twelfth man. I said you didn't have to bring uh, Noon Dog Lager. Quite good, thank you. I, I saw a documentary about Australian prisons in the early nineteen mm. nineties, and they interviewed one old, one poor old man who spent most of his life inside, and he said, "Look, you know, he's going to go and do something to get sent back because mm. he just can't make it on the outside." You know. Mm. Right, Paul, having got all those facts out of the way, let's now talk about what's been going on. Okay. So um, protesting during a pandemic. Uh, Not a problem at- for me, of course. <laughs> 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 Mr. Anti-Lockdown. Yes. So in your view, um, no problem people exercising their rights of free speech, pandemic or no pandemic. Absolutely. You don't have any hesitation at all with, with people protesting? Not really. Right. Okay. My thoughts on this one are that um, it's a balancing act, the risk of infection versus the importance of the issue. So in America, they've got a high risk of infection because the virus is through the community so much more. But also for them, the issue is particularly important because this is happening in their backyard. The whole George Floyd thing is is their issue. Yep. And I completely understand that that the seriousness of the issue 
outweighs the risk of the, the relatively high risk of infection and good on you, go out there and do it, uh, take all precautions. No, I'm strong, yeah. as you know, a strong advocate of mm. um, the, the mm. right to protest. If, however, Australia had the same infection rate that America has, where it was really uncontrolled in the community, and we're talking about an issue that's really an American issue to a large extent, given everything we've just said, dear listener, I don't know that it would be justified. But given we've got this extremely low risk because there's hardly any coronavirus out there, I mean, if you'd wanted to catch it, you'd have a hard time doing it. Uh, I don't have a problem with the... In Australia. Yes, I don't have a problem with the protests and I guess it highlights... Well, here's the other thing, Paul. Does this mean then that everyone should be allowed to go 30,000 people to a football match as a result? Is, would you have that view now? Or does this I, mean it opens the floodgates for that? You know, I mean, Warren's pointed out to us these so-called super spreader events. So I can see that there is an elevated risk in a sports stadium because there are so many people crammed in so close together. Mm. I personally don't think prote- walking down the street with a bunch of protesters is in the same category of risk, personally. Mm. Uh, you know, what I've read about picking up the virus is that your chance of picking it up in an outdoor space is so marginal anyway that, you know, walking down the street, you're probably mm. not going to catch it. Mm. In a stadium, maybe. Mm. You know, you're sitting on seats that have been touched, you know, all the handrails going up and down the stairs have been touched. There's an infrastructure there you're exactly. dealing with. Yeah. There, there, there are obvious um, means of transmission. Mm. The other thing is exercising your liberty and protesting is a far more important event than Going attending to a, football a football match. match. <laughs> so when we're talking about the balancing act mm. of the importance of what you're trying to do versus the risk of what you're doing, mm. I think it's fair enough to say that uh, this sort of protest action is more important mm. and warrants a, a greater risk than a football match would. Probably, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, thoughts on that issue. Um, let's see what else we have here. Um, it would have been pretty hard. Anastasia Palisade in Queensland, for example, um, when she was asked, you know, what about these protests? Are you going to let these happen? She said something like, well, that's a police matter. <laughs> what a cop out. What, what a cop-out. An incredible cop-out. Just what a cop-out. Because she's been one of the most vehement pro-lockdown premiers in the country. And yep. she still hasn't, yep. uh, you know, opened the border completely. Yep. But even with that, she's saying, well, it's up to the chief medical officer, you know. It's, it's almost as if I've got no power as a premier to do anything. It's up to the police as to whether they allow the protest. It's up to the chief medical officer as to whether we, we get out of lockdown. For goodness <laughs> sake. Yeah. Pathetic, I think we'll agree, agree, like as a premier. But honestly, even if she didn't like the idea, what are they going to do to the police? They can't arrest 30,000 people. So when when 30,000 people decide to do something, you really have to stand back and let them do it whether you like it or not. That's because, right. I mean, a democracy is supposed to reflect the will of the people. That's right. And 30,000 people is a lot of will. Demonstrating their will. Yeah. And, okay, you might be able to catch and lock up uh, 500 of the slowest ones who couldn't that's run right. fast enough, but then what are you going to do? So, that's right. And the mayhem you're going to cause and all the rest of it, whether she wanted to or not. She, she could have said, for example, I really don't think the protesters should do it. Uh, it's illegal, but 
there's nothing I can do because it's physically impossible to arrest that crowd without causing a commotion. So you could have said that. And in Victoria they didn't give uh, permission to the protesters either. In New South Wales they did. Yes. But not in Victoria. So what happened there? Did they arrest anybody? I think they were going to charge the protest, the organisers. Oh, the organisers. That's not, right. I'm yes. not sure what happened there. So they would have issued fines of, yeah. what is it, 1000 so many hundred dollars to yeah. each of them. Yeah, I don't know. And they probably split it, you know, with their protest organising mates or whatever. Yeah. The, um, the Chaser had a good headline. They said that the New South Wales Premier was forced to allow the protest after organisers rebranded it as a football game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Paul, why why are people protesting? Why why in Brisbane, <sighs> Sydney, New South? Do you know? What, in what, a, in, a, in a sense, what, I I see it in a positive light because to me it says a lot of ordinary Australians genuinely feel that Australia, if it isn't, it should be a fair country and it should be fair for everybody. So I mean, I sort of take a little bit of a positive message from it: the fact that so many people felt that, yes, there is an issue and we should show our support for it. So you think they were protesting the local deaths in custody issue? That appears to be what they were protesting. This is the hard part about protests is you can go along and you're never really sure what the <laughs> – like I remember when we went to yeah. the protest for the religious uh, – protesting against the religious discrimination bill. Yeah. And before we started marching, one of the organisers said, uh, um, let's do, we'll do a quick chant to demonstrate um, our solidarity with our Indigenous brothers and sisters. And it was like the always was, always will be Aboriginal land oh, chant. Do you remember like that? Yeah. And I thought... That was the one we went to in, in the, the King George Square. Yeah. It was like, hang on a minute, we came here for a religious discrimination That's bill right. demonstration. What happened here? And uh. you could... So um, maybe people turned up because they were thinking... I'm protesting about what's happening in America mm-hmm. with George Floyd. And, Maybe they did. And it's hard to – problem with protests is knowing what people were actually protesting about. Mm-hmm. So if they were – I guess they have their placards, which says it, but then there yeah. can be a variety of things on the placards. But Usually. it did seem to be that the majority of people in the Australian ones were protesting Aboriginal deaths in custody. It you seemed. got that impression too. Yeah, I did. And given what we've just said about the facts, that in fact it's a big problem for non-Indigenous people, as much a problem, um, it's a strange one to pick. Well, why, wouldn't you just, all- why wouldn't you just say deaths in custody? Is there- Do you think some of the um, Indigenous activists um, were a bit opportunistic and sort of shaped it to their purposes? I don't know. I, I mean, I think they would have just thought, this is what it's obviously about. Let's run with it. I don't know that people necessarily want to. Parallels were drawn, though, mm. weren't they, between the death of uh, the, the the American man. What's his name? George, George Floyd. Floyd. yeah. People were making drawing parallels between yes. his treatment yes. and the treatment of Indigenous people at yes. the hands of police. Yes, and particularly that case where the guy was trying to eat the biscuits and he was having insulin. He was diabetic and there yeah, were insulin And there were several police yeah. sort of lying. So there were parallels back. there, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
look, I'll just think of some of my thoughts I had here. Um, uh, that sort of, there's been 400 deaths. We heard it a lot. There's been 413, I think they were saying, something like that. And nobody's been charged. And why not? And and you really got the impression that, okay, these people were killed at the hands of of Murderous correction officers. Police, yes. And 400. Really, and yeah. Why and, haven't 400 correctional officers and, at least been charged? And you hear that and you think, wow, that's bad. But as we've just learned, more than half of them were natural causes. You've got to be honest about these statistics. Otherwise, when people hear these statistics from somewhere else, then they devalue what you've got to say. So now it's open slather for someone like Sky News to run a kind of a, a, um, a collage of statements by left-wingers all talking about these number of deaths in custody and why hasn't somebody been charged yes. and then follow it up with the statistics that we've yep. just done showing, well, some of these people died in natural causes. That's right. And that then for their, you know, uh, list viewers, they're immediately then hardened into a view that, oh, this is all a beat up. Yeah, that there's no problem. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it's a big danger if you're going to exaggerate totally. a position. Um, you, you're undermining your cause yep. and causing potentially irreparable harm to it. So don't do it. Be honest with the statistics. Yeah. Like it's bad enough if there's, I don't know how many, 20 or 30 where there were correction officers at their hands. I don't know what the figure might be. But don't say 400 and half of those are natural causes. And, you know, even one is too many. I think everybody would agree, you know. They would, but we'll also get, well, I'll mention that now. You're never going to get perfection. And you're never going to get zero deaths in it. In any particular context, are you, really? Yeah, so fair I mean, enough. kids die on bloody, you know, scout camp sometimes, don't they? Yeah. Um, Coleman Hughes, we've mentioned before, and he was interviewed by Dave Rubin, who I don't like, but good interview. <laughs> Go and look on YouTube, Dave Rubin yeah. and Coleman Hughes. I really like Coleman Hughes because, um, and we're going to quote him a bit later, but... What he was saying at one point was, you know, some people like to treat racism like smallpox, the idea that you can eradicate yes. it completely. Like a disease. Yes. And you'll never eradicate it completely. It's like murder in New York was the example he was giving. Yes. That you'll never get the murder rate in New York down to zero. Mm. Now, it might have been a 1,000 people per month and now it's 200 or whatever. Yes. You, can, you can get to a point but you then reach a point of diminishing returns where there are all, in the racism um, sort of analogy is there are always going to be racist people. Yes. And if you, I thought it was a terrific analogy too, that, yeah. you know, saying it's not like a disease. It's not like we can just yeah. vaccinate everybody against racism. Yeah. It's an attitudinal problem. So if you wanted to create a situation in New York where there were zero murders, you would have to have such a, a tyranny of control over people that, life wouldn't be worth living. A police state, an actual police state where everybody's conversations are monitored. Yep. And indeed, in the jail system, you would say, well, we could prevent more deaths through suicide or 
uh, trauma means or whatever. But you might then have to create such a tyranny of control that it's a really uncomfortable situation. For example, this guy who died because he had biscuits, Mm. I don't know the background of that at all. But when you start having to control biscuits because it's potentially going to kill somebody, you can imagine the the sort of extremes you would have to get to potentially to limit, to to reduce all risk (coughs) of all unusual death in a prison system. So, so. You can never have zero. There's, there's always a balancing act there. It's like our speed limits. We know people are going to die on the Hot Bruce Highway and if the speed limit wasn't 100 but was in fact 60, there would be less deaths. There would it's, be less. But, it's a, but there wouldn't be zero. Y- y- yes. Because sooner there would always be someone who would say, ah, 60, fuck yeah. that, I'm going to do 100. Yeah. So, um, So... Um, so Paul in the chat room says, what's an acceptable number of deaths to aim for if not zero? Well, you can aim for zero, but you can't. But it's unrealistic you, 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 to expect you, to reach zero. Yeah. Do you, Paul, is what, what's an acceptable number of deaths by a car accident in Australia? Is it zero as well? Um, and we have made progress, by the way. Be, because if that is the acceptable level, we'd have to do such a tyrannical amount of control That's drivers right. You'd have to engineer the vehicle so that they cannot go faster than 40 kilometres an hour or something. Yeah. And all, all the rest of it. Yeah. So, uh, but we have. So, so it's all, we do it all the time. It's a balancing act. We have, in fact, uh, through better built cars and, you know, more policing, halved the road fatality rate since the 1970s when it was a roughly 3,000 per year in Australia. Yeah. Now it's around 1,500, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have made progress, mm. but we're nowhere near zero. Yes. <laughs> and, and so Paul says, yes, you've hit the point. We can achieve it, but we, we can't achieve it, but we can aim for it. And we can. Yes. But then don't, don't claim that we're the most racist fucking society because we haven't achieved it. Or it's, the worst drivers it, it, because it, we still have 1,500 road <laughs> fatalities indeed, a year. be reasonable in yeah. your assessment of what's been done is, is the other point to that. So... Um, well, so what else have I got here uh, in my notes about this is um, uh, part of the thing, if you haven't watched Q&A, have a look at some point because part of our thinking in this whole episode is kind of based not only on what we saw in the protests but the sort of stuff we've seen on Q&A and what was undoubtedly on the drum or something like that. Um, so, uh, sorry, Paul, if I've misrepresented what you said. It's I'm in the hurly burly of looking at comments. <laughs> so, um, yes, you've yeah. just sorry. Accept my apologies, Paul, if I've misrepresented you. Um, uh, what was I going to say? That it was pr- it's pretty much a condemnation of white Australia occurred on Q and A. It seemed to me. And didn't you think it was interesting? They had one representative of each of the main political parties, yep. one from the government, one from the main opposition, mm. uh, both white males, mm. and then they had uh, two Indigenous people from the entertainment industry. Yes. And, and another one who was a, a, an originally an African immigrant uh, on the screen um, from Melbourne. Yep. So I guess this was an opportunity to try and gather allies 
rather than turn people away. So as we've seen from the statistics, people who've got white non-Indigenous friends in jail are dying at the same rate and are probably concerned as well about the death rates, if you like. If you're going to say to white Australia, you racist assholes, you've, you've just alienated a group of potential supporters who if you said to them, guess what, guys, your white people are also dying in here and you should be concerned as well and join us in a common fight to improve the prison survivability rates, wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't you think? But when you, when you abuse other people, they're not going to come on board, even when they've got the same problem. Exactly, and that's what I was going to say, is where you, you, you talk as if your people have a problem, mm. but the majority of the population don't have any problems. Mm. So, um, so on this one, for example, there's a sort of, some people are saying all lives matter rather than black lives matter. <laughs> and yeah. I saw a, a, a twist on that, mm. all black lives matter. Right. And and one argument would be from the Indigenous side would be it's okay to concentrate on a particular problem and set aside for the moment any wider or different problems. So we can't solve everything at once, so you pick out the worst and you, and you concentrate on those. And that's true for certain, like sort of whataboutism, we're saying, well, what about the white people? And the blacks might say, well, we're facing a particular problem and you've got your problem and we can't solve all the problems in the world, so let's just concentrate on one and mm -hmm. that's the best we can do at the moment. And there's mm -hmm. some, you know, justification for that. There is Provided some. there's a valid distinction. I mean, we've just seen that the, that the uh, death rates in prison are almost identical. Why not gather support if you can? Definitely don't abuse if you don't have to. Um, and um, I'll give a strange example. Like this is okay. I'll probably be stretching things a little bit this way, but let me let me run this sort of thought experiment analogy with you. And I recognise it's got faults in it. Okay, but I thought it was interesting when I wrote it. Was um, you might decide you want to save the whales, right? And um, and somebody you're going to have a save the whale protest, and somebody says. Well, what about the overfishing of tuna, for yeah. example? And you go, well, let's just concentrate on the whales because there are specific issues to deal with whales, Japanese research vessels or something. You know, we could be saving the panda bears or whatever, but we really want to concentrate on the whales because that's our thing, right? And you'd say, okay, that's fair enough, a save the whale protest. Mm. But you wouldn't say save the blue whales if humpback whales or minke whales or southern right whales were all swimming in the same sea and suffering the same fate, you would just say, save the whales, mm, wouldn't you? Maybe. And um, let's imagine that there are specific issues for blue whales and you decide to hold a save the blue whales rally for whatever reason. And if you did hold a save the blue whale rally, you wouldn't tell a person holding a, a sign up which said, save the humpback whale. You wouldn't tell them to fuck off and cheer as police took him away. Well, you might if uh, you were only there for the blue whales, right? Yeah. You'd ignore him and tell him he's at the wrong rally. Wouldn't so, you think? So that has happened with this all, um, all lives matter issue. And it is a bit more complicated than that, and I'm going to get to it. But for those of you who haven't seen 
the uh, the tape of this. I'm going to play a little bit that for you. The one at the um, Sydney Town Hall. I think. Yeah. So if you're watching in the live stream, you'll get to see this, and I'll probably delete this little minute for the podcast. Um, so with a bit of luck, that's playing. And you can see a guy who's on the steps of, oh, where is he? Um, I think it might have been New South Wales. Yeah, it looks like Sydney Town Hall. Yeah. He had a placard up where he had black crossed out, white crossed out, and he just had the words, all lives matter. And the crowd have gone for him. Like it's a very vicious scene. Yes. They were very, very hostile to him. And I thought it interesting, the fact that, as you say, he had the words black and white both crossed out. So he very deliberately made the point that we're all human and we all matter, and yet that was unacceptable to these people. Yes, and the crowd booed him as he he was led away. So, um, so, um. It reminds me of that incident a few months ago in Melbourne where there was a guy on the steps maybe of um, Flinders Street Station and there was a parade coming past Mm. and the police took him away. Remember that one? Because I remember you commenting on that one. Was that also an All Lives Matter? I can't remember what that one was, but he was led away. He was led away and we both thought that he should not have been harassed by the police. Yeah. So... Back to my analogy, that was a guy saying, save all whales, and mm-hmm. the blue whales people told him to piss off yeah. um, and were quite angry with him. They were very angry. Now, here's the problem, though, and it is more complicated because the sort of all lives matter slogan has potentially now become a code word for I don't believe this black lives matter stuff. Like it's, it's potentially become that sort of code word. Potentially. And, 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 and the fact that Pauline Hansen famously yeah. has used that expression yeah. and, it, you know, a, lo- a lot of people, I don't know if she's really a racist, maybe yeah. she is, maybe she isn't, but a lot of people assume or just take it as a given that mm. she's a racist and therefore anything that comes out of her mouth yeah. must be associated with racism. Yeah. So I'd be a little bit wary now about holding up 12 months ago, you could have held up an All Lives Matter placard, perhaps. Do you think? And it would have meant literally, okay, five years ago. Yeah, I don't think 12 an, months ago okay, you would have been safe. You could have held up an All Lives Matter placard, which would have been taken to mean literally All Lives Matter, good on you. Now there's a, another reading of it that it's code for an, a sort of an anti-black sentiment, perhaps. A bit like um, Adam Goods, the footballer. Mm. Now, um, in football, it's um, tradition to cheer and to boo, and some players just get booed more than others because they perceive they just don't like them, whatever. And at one point, you know, ten years ago, if you're watching a game of football and you booed um, Adam Goods, that would have been taken to be, I just don't like the way Adam Goods plays. Boo hoo! Wouldn't you think? But after all of the sort of uproar and the protests and it then reached a point where, in fact, a boo meant something else, and it meant there were some it, words. Yeah, he had some a whole, people used some words yeah, that he didn't like. It blew and, up into a whole yeah. uh, thing that we've discussed previously, but it's just an example where something can change its meaning over time, Indeed. based on events that happen. Yeah. So, 
So maybe the All Lives Matter placard isn't as innocent as it seems, but this is an example of the left really turning on somebody. um, Viciously. Quite viciously. I mean, the left likes to think of itself as tolerant and open to ideas. Except if... And the embodiment of virtue, don't they? Yes. I mean, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. Um, Right. Let me just see. My next point here is... Um, we mentioned before about some of the statistics and, and part of the problem here is not white-on-black discrimination but black-on-black violence, which is erupting from pretty dysfunctional Indigenous societies in the remote areas and you have a culture problem is what we're going to get to. And dear listener, is about Indigenous culture and Dare issues. we go there. We will go there. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of a clip from Coleman Hughes. So let me play this for a minute. At the end of the day, homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men aged 15 to 34, according to the CDC. It is not the leading cause for any other race. And I I never read about this in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And And I know that I won't, right? So this is, this is a problem that is central. It is, it is bigger than the problem of police violence. It is bigger than, you know, than the problem of microaggressions. It is bigger than the problems of, of systemic bias. And yet there is, there's virtually no concern for this on the left because the, the, the way I see many progressives think about race issues is a perpetrator side concern, which is mm-hmm. if the perpetrators of the problem are white, then it's worth talking about. If the perpetrators of the problem happen to be black, then it's not worth talking about. The problem with that is that it's untethered to any concern for the level of suffering on this side, on the victim side. That's common news. Um, Paul, you want to talk about violence? Uh, in America, in Australia? Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Australia, I think you had something. Okay. Right. Um, this is a book. Mm-hmm. In my collection, yep. it's called "Liberating Aboriginal People from Violence" by Stephanie Jarrett, and uh, this was basically her PhD put into book form. Mm-hmm. Okay, now Stephanie Jarrett, uh, I think she's an anthropologist or something like that, and she did most of her field work in the north and the central parts of Australia, among Indigenous communities. And the title really tells you what it's about, liberating Aboriginal people from violence. And she documents the level of violence in Aboriginal communities. And, look, one of the interesting things that she she noted was that um, there was a period in Australian history where uh, Christian missionaries took it upon themselves to take our Indigenous people under their wings and, of course, teach them about Jesus, as, mm. as you'd expect, but also to, to try and uh, ease their path into sort of more sort of mainstream European-style society or at least the ones that they could persuade that way. She says that levels of violence were less, were lower during the mission period because we know the missions have all gone now. Mm-hmm. The, the missionaries were the missions were basically forced to 
to to close their operations and hand over the lands to the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. She said the levels of violence were lower in the mission period, lower than pre-contact, lower than before the missions, and lower than after the missions. Mm-hmm. So basically, after the missionaries left, where the people were told, well, this is your land now, uh, you know, do what you, you want with it, you know, carry on your your communities, uh, they reverted to their uh, pre, pre, pre-missionary ways of not only social organisation but settling issues, settling arguments, settling problems. And in the traditional cultures, or at least the ones that I've read about, uh, violence was a very, very standard measure. Mm-hmm. So if you had a problem, whether it was you know an argument with someone or particularly a, a domestic issue between a man and a woman, you know, or a woman and a man, violence was very, very commonly the solution. So the man would feel almost obliged, according to what I've read, to inflict violence on his wife mm. to keep her in line, you know, to make sure she understood what her place was and. Uh, Violence was endemic, mm. so I don't know how else to put it, but it was very, very common. Mm. So given that, it's not surprising that they culturally will be more inclined to commit violent acts and be convicted of them and in jail for more so than non-Indigenous people as a cultural <laughs> relic, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Uh, that appears to be the case, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, um, in the chat room, I'm having trouble uh, actually viewing the chat room properly, so I'm sort of struggling with that. So sorry if I don't get to all of your chats as I would normally, but um, I'll just try and restart it again and see if I give it one more go. And, and this can... book, by the way, comes with a recommendation. You know how they get a, you know, a promotion by some famous person? Right. This one's... Uh, Recommended by Beth Nungara, Nungarayi Price. Right. Uh, Jacinta's uh, just, mother. Uh, okay. I Thank believe you. it's her mother. Right. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's right. Jacinta's mother. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jacinta. Right. Okay. <laughs> I hope Jacinta's listening. <laughs> I don't think she will be. Um, let me just see here what I've got. Um, here's the other thing. that Just watching that Q&A program the other night. How much of it did you watch? Oh, uh, Three quarters, I think. Oh, really? You yeah. was tough. I turned I mean, it off after about five minutes. I just couldn't hack it. My wife's away at the moment for a couple of days, so I had <laughs> spare time. <laughs> Look, here's the thing. They're really angry, really angry. and But at no point did they actually acknowledge any success of Indigenous people or Indigenous communities. It was all bad. Yeah. and. And given that the actual participants, like uh, Nakaya Louie, just it looks to me like she won a scholarship to go and do her baccalaureate in Canada. She won a scholarship to do law. She's had various grants to do plays and stuff. She's speaking to a national audience on Q&A. The same with the actor. He went to NIDA. He's been employed as seemingly successfully as an, as an actor. I wish I could have gone to NIDA. And, and I just thought, shouldn't you people be acknowledging that you're a success story and 
that, okay, there are other people who are suffering, mm. but they were really talking about themselves as suffering. And, yep. and, you know, it was hard to discern with the male actor whether he was talking about um, his, his actor roles or or because he, he has a monologue at the end that he mm. gives, and it's hard to know whether he's talking about his personal experience or, or, or not. But it seems I believe be, that monologue was from a stage production. Yeah, which seems to be extremely autobiographical. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in it, uh, you know, he talks about being typecast as an Aboriginal man when who's always the hunter, the tracker, or the angry Aboriginal man or something. And, mate, you're not the first person to be typecast, like – that's a first world problem. Uh, if that's your biggest problem, for goodness sake, we know so many people are, are suffering in, in remote Indigenous communities from sex, child sexual abuse, completely dysfunctional societies, hell on earth, and and you've been typecast as an actor. Like, if that's... If you, that's the biggest problem in our Indigenous and, world, yep. then... And, gee. okay, you had trouble hailing a taxi. The taxi would come up, check you out, move on because you look Indigenous. That's not nice. It's, it's really not good. But, Terrible. Um, but honestly, if you're listing all of the problems of Indigenous Australians from the, from the most horrendous to the least... I think that one was way down the list. There's a lot of other things that you could have been dealing with um, before that. Yep. So um, anyway. So what about culture, Trevor? What do you think is the place of culture in analysing these problems? Because we've we've talked both on the podcast and privately about this before. Mm. And my feeling is, and I know this is an unpopular view, um, my feeling is that um, our Indigenous brothers and sisters need to really have a good look at their culture and decide which parts are good and worth keeping and which parts need to be left behind. Just like our ancestors, our ancestors were all hunter-gatherers, every single one of us, and yet, and, and they probably had similar problems with violence back in the day as well. Um, but at some point, our ancestors have decided that some of their old ways were no longer fitting, you know, the new lifestyle or whatever, or the new society, and they left them behind. I think our Indigenous brothers and sisters very, very badly need to have a good look, at, a good deep look at their culture and decide which parts are no longer uh, good or useful or uh, holding them back, perhaps even. I think it comes down to engagement. Part part of what's it's seemingly um, taught to the indigenous community by their leaders is some of them are saying, "Don't engage in white society. You're different. You're yep. black. Yep. You do your own thing. You don't have to be part of the white man's world." Mm. And that's just a recipe for disaster in a society that's dominated by mm. by white men's culture. If yeah. you are not going to engage and work with it, then you're just going to be on the scrap heap the whole time. And it's the ones who engage and agree to be part of it, maintaining what they can of their culture along the way, mm. um, who are successful. But it's that 
that whole notion of a failure to engage mm. and you don't need to and you're different, that's they're the ones to me who really um, suffer. Do you suspect also that to some degree some of the Indigenous leaders are also basically telling their young people don't expect anything good to come from white society? Or at least expect to be treated badly by those horrible white people? Uh, not so much. I wouldn't have phrased it that way. Okay. But I think it's more of we're different. We're this tribe. They're that tribe. Mm. We stay apart. Mm. We do our thing. They do their thing. Never yep. the twain shall meet. And... Um, well, it all comes down to identity politics. So let's look at identity politics and some definitions. So this is from an article I saw in Medium a long time ago, which I've dragged up for this event. Um, um, like arguing from identity is often you'll see people say, as a proud blah, 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 man or woman, I think this. Or as in, that, that's sort of, I'm this tribe, therefore I think this. Yeah. Um, it's stupid, isn't it? Yeah. So it's the idea that your your physical form determines your thoughts. Mm. So let me just uh, try and find the relevant section here. Identity politics is contemporary shorthand for a group's assertion that it is a meaningful group that differs significantly from other groups, that its members share a history of injustice and grievance and that its psychological and political mission is to explore, act out, act on, and act up its group identity. I think that's a fair assessment of what's happening in a lot of Indigenous culture. Mm. Um, uh, so modern identity politics offers much that religion offered the masses, but in a convenient online form. From behind the screen, you can find people who identify with your sense of oppression, form a group with shared beliefs and gather together in a vast echo chamber to reinforce your ideas. Uh, there's something appealing about starting a sentence with something like, as a feminist, I think, blah, blah. As a minority, I feel, blah, blah. As a white man, you cannot understand, blah, blah. Um, it creates a sense of belonging and it's something to do. Um, but while we create and identify ourselves with ever more specific groups of oppressed souls, we by definition create and identify more groups of oppressors. Um, and we neglect to identify with one another um, on the only level that truly matters, our common humanity. And this incarceration rate, deaths in custody, is the deaths in custody is a classic example. It's a common problem for blacks and whites. There's a common humanity problem here, which has been just siloed into an identity politics issue. Those of you who joined the podcast years ago because we spoke a lot about secularism and we would have quoted Christopher Hitchens at different times, uh, Hitchens would have deplored sort of identity politics. Um, let me see if I, uh, just quoting from this article, Hitchens attacked radicals who thought it was enough to be a member of a sex or gender or epidermal subdivision <laughs> or even erotic <laughs> preference to qualify as a revolutionary. Yeah. Um, people who think with their epidermis or their genitalia or their clan are the problem to begin with. Um, one does not banish this spectre by invoking it. 
If I would not vote against someone on the grounds of race or gender alone, then by the exact same token, I would not cast a vote in his or her favour for the identical reason. So, uh, And yet we know around the world hmm. in, in countries where there are a number of major ethnic or social groups, we know that they often do become quite tribal in their politics and um, vote for the person from their group. That does right. happen in some countries, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But not, I'm, I'm not saying it's a good thing by any means. I think it's retrograde. Right. Paul in the chat room says, black deaths in custody isn't a custody problem, it's a racism problem. Paul, did you hear our statistics about at the beginning about custody? And uh, we, we might have missed some from the beginning. Anyway, um, let's talk about... If we really want to talk about the effect of culture, let's talk about Coleman Hughes and what he said in Quillette. So I often have a problem with I'm sort of lumping. You don't like Quillette generally, do you? Generally, no. I don't know why. Oh. I find it one of the most mm. interesting online journals out of all of them mm. for the variety of topics they cover for the, I don't know, I, I find it intellectually stimulating and you know i think the quality of the writing is generally pretty good as well mm. anyway common here's a few things in there and um uh i've got a link to an article where he spoke about i think it's entitled black american culture and the racial wealth gap and a few different ideas that he comes up with um and he says uh let me just see here He talks about how one of the excuses is that white people have got a built-up wealth that gives them an advantage in terms of a socioeconomic advantage that, that blacks don't have in the United States. And he says, well, a couple of counters to that would be that Japanese Americans were banned from owning property for a long time yes. uh, until 1952. Um, and after 1952, they were allowed to own stuff. And by 1970, the Japanese Americans were out, out earning the Anglo Americans, Irish Americans, German Americans, Italian Americans, and Polish Americans. Yes. There was, there was a cultural thing about the Japanese Americans yes. that they knuckled down and were hard economic, hardworking and economically savvy. That's as, right. As right. And so, studious as children. Indeed. It's more than just work. It's also about savviness. And I, I give the example I'm quite close to a Jewish family and I think I understand Jewish culture a little bit more than most people do and they have a Shabbat on every Friday night. And, and Jewish people gather together, the various families, on a Friday night and religiously, literally, and they talk about stuff and they're into business. They talk about business. And if you were an 8, 12, 14-year-old, a teenager, as the family's talking business, you take that in by osmosis mm. and you learn about business. Just sitting around the table at Shabbat as the adults are talking about mm -hmm. it, which is an experience that, that you'd get more of that there than you would in, in any other culture, I'm sure. And we know that originally, dating back 2,000 years, the Jews were not allowed to own 
land, so they had to become merchants, so they were forced into business. They've been doing it for a long time and their kids learn it um, that way. A completely different experience to other cultures, I think. So mm. that's an example that I'm quite uh, aware of. Another example that Coleman Hughes gives is that um, looking at uh, a 2015 survey in Boston that looked at the median black household that only had $8 of wealth. and um, But what when they looked closer, what they found was that $8 figure only pertained to black Bostonians of American ancestry. Black Bostonians of Caribbean ancestry had $12,000 of wealth, despite having identical rates of college graduation and only slightly higher incomes. It was a different culture between the Caribbean Americans who came across. Now, in a society, when the police and everybody else is looking at them, they can't tell the difference. You cannot look at a Caribbean American and an African American and and, and tell the difference. So there are big cultural differences, though, in terms of their propensity to spend money on different things and their um, willingness to educate and also... Um, certainly in the teenage African-American blacks, there's a real problem with not appearing too white. And if you do well at school, you are being too white. And there's all these sort of negative connotations attached with success academically. So very different cultures. They look the same, so subjected to the same forces, but different outcomes. I think Coleman Hughes, and I heard a number of other what are sometimes referred to as conservative black American commentators. Mm. And a whole lot of them, or several that I've heard, refer to the rate of um, out-of-wedlock um, childbirth in the African American community. Yeah. And they say it's really high. They say it's something mm. like 75%, yeah. which yep. is incredible. Mm. And they said, you know, back in, you know, the 19. 19- 20s, it was like 25%. Yeah, wasn't the case. Mm. And now, you know, it's mm. like 75%. And he and I think a bunch of others see that as a core issue. Yep, yep. Another issue was spending patterns. Um, so more data on that from a Nielsen report found that compared to white women, black women were 14% more likely to own a luxury vehicle, 16% more likely to purchase costume jewellery, 9% more likely to purchase fine jewellery. A similar report from 2013 um, found that uh, 62% of Americans owned a smartphone, but 71% of blacks owned one. And um, these spending differences were unconditional on wealth and income. So that wasn't a factor. It was it was a, a cultural thing Very in much terms so. of their spending patterns. Um, uh, so what he says is if you truly believe that racial groups are equal, then you also believe that racial disparities must be the result of racial discrimination. That this is one of the problems. Mm. If you if you don't accept cultural differences, then you see all differences must be the result of discrimination. Yes. But if by the are, dominant group. Yeah. But mm. if there are cultural differences, that can explain some of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what else does he say? Um, there's a range of things here. Um, where are we up to, Paul? 
There's something in Aboriginal culture as well, which is perhaps worth mentioning. And I remember reading about uh, an Aboriginal actor who played in the 1950s, I think it was, a movie called Jeddah. Have you ever seen Jeddah? Um, No. You should see it. It's a fabulous old film. It was about a – it was set in Central Australia. It was about a – a young Indigenous woman who falls in, you know, she's raised on a mission or she's, you know, she's um, part of a a, fa- a white farmer, you know, f- white settler family or at least on the fringes of the family. But she falls in love with a, uh, you know, one, one of the wild Indigenous fellows who, who hasn't been on the mission yet and goes off with him, runs away with him. And for some reason they get... Um, Anyway, doesn't really matter what happens in the movie. He got he got paid quite a lot of money for the acting role, the man who played the lead. And um, I read that in his later life, you know, it was a bit tragic. You know, he had, I think, problems with uh, alcohol and things like that. But I also read that part of the problem for him was that whatever money he made, he was expected to share with his family. Mm. That's a cultural thing, which yes. is apparently common throughout our Indigenous uh, communities. Yes. Uh, and they have a special word for it. And yeah, something bagging or something. something. Um, I just forget what it, what the word is now. Mm. It's on the tip of my tongue. <coughs> mm. But anyway, that that is definitely an issue for Indigenous people is that, um, you know, if someone in their family asks them yep. for something, they're yep. ob- obliged to give it to them. Yep. Yeah, that would be a big cultural issue. That's yeah. a big factor in terms of people's propensity to save. Exactly. It's yeah. like the example you gave of the African-Americans. It's a cultural norm, if you like. Mm. Mm. Um, let's try and be a little bit positive about what can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, one idea to keep in mind is the parable of the pedestrian. This is still from Coleman Hughes's article. Um, a reckless driver runs a stoplight and hits a pedestrian, injuring her spine. Doctors inform the pedestrian that if she ever wants to walk again, she'll have to spend many painstaking years in physical therapy. Clearly, she bears no responsibility for her injury. She was victimised by the reckless driver. Yet the driver cannot make her whole. He might pay for her medical bills, for instance, but he cannot make her attend her tedious physical therapy sessions. Only she can do that. Still, she might resist. She might write historical accounts detailing precisely how and why the driver injured her. When her physical therapists demand more of her, she might accuse them of blaming the victim. She might wallow in the unfairness of it, but this will change nothing. The nature of her injury precludes the possibility of anyone besides her healing it. There's that idea to keep in mind. And how to change culture. How does one go about changing something as complex and distributed as culture? On this point, the history of forming uh, lagging ethnic groups is instructive, whether measured by rates of alcoholism, high school graduation or income, Irish Americans used to lag far behind other American ethnic groups. Um, As one point of reference, the incarceration rate for Irish Americans was five times higher than German Americans in 1904. The response? While some Irish leaders blame society, others, notably those in the Catholic Church, launched an inward-looking campaign to change behavioural patterns within the Irish community. So 
One of the, and he finishes off with an important idea here is the left, which has the power to start an intelligent conversation about culture, refuses to admit that culture accounts for many of the racial gaps mm. typically ascribed to systemic racism. The right, which does acknowledge the role of culture, is too far from the media channels through which blacks tend to communicate to have any chance of starting a robust conversation about culture. That's an interesting point. Mm. In all of this, I find the left refuses to engage on this issue of culture and its mm. negative effects. The right is saying it, but, you know, Indigenous people will never be listening to, they won't be watching Sky News, for example. So that's an interesting way that this is split up left and right. Which, which is exactly why I get so frustrated with people if I'm talking about politics or society and if you suggest something, as I said earlier, that's outside the sort of group of, of um, accepted wisdom of the left, then you're automatically categorised as right-wing, you know? Mm. And that's why I find this differentiation between left and right mm. frustrating and largely sometimes meaningless. Mm. On this issue, yes. I thought of the word humbug. Humbug, yeah. Isn't that the word they use? I think it could be, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for our indigenous no, a huge friends. cultural effect on huge, mm. and not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, you know, we'd we'd all like to think we we are generous and share our wealth with our family, or you know, mm. but apparently it is such a deep obligation in Aboriginal society that it's very hard to escape mm. from it. Yeah. So any wealth you make, so you could be a professional in the entertainment business, you could make a lot of money. But uh, according to certain members of your family, it doesn't necessarily all belong to you, you know, mm. so. Mm. Hey, um, I reckon we should probably stop because we've kind of got a discreet topic <laughs> yeah. that we've dealt with for an hour 25. We have, yes. Do you want to call for anybody who wants to zoom zoom in and... Argue um, the point, or do you or have not? anyone in mind? I don't know. I just know the chat room's been going. Um, look, this part might not make it on the podcast. So, um, what I'm going to do because we've got you're not going anywhere, are you? No, Paul? no, I'm in no so, particular hurry. So, what I've got to do, which this may not make it on the podcast, is I might put up, um, I might put up the Zoom contact, and if anybody there wants to, um. Ask us why we're such racists. Yeah. We can hear you, Paul. You're you're live on air. <laughs> Good of you to join. G'day, 12th man. G'day, Iron Fist. G'day, Paul. Yeah. So, Paul, you've listened to what we've said. Um, and I know you've Given had... That I didn't make it to the first half of the conversation, so I'm sorry about that. Okay. So, um, so thoughts, uh or disagreements or agreements? What what are your thoughts on what we've been saying? Look, I really agree with the th what you both last said, especially Twelfth Man, uh, that we need to keep, uh, we need to see this as a cultural thing which that group can change in itself. Uh, and that, like I'd put it, put an argument this way, that's just as much the police's job to change their own culture as it is the African-Americans' job to stop shooting each other. Does that make sense? 
Uh, yeah, I, I would probably make a big distinction with African-American shooting situation in Australia because I see a real genuine issue of police brutality in America that I don't necessarily see here. So I, I think in the American situation, a lot of white people also looked at the br- police brutality as though they as though being victims of that and were fully aware and thought, well, if it's happened to me, I can only imagine what happens to black people. And I, I, I think I think the police brutality in America was just obvious, and the and the riots and the police response afterwards have only confirmed it mm. as an issue where mm. I would tend to say that in the Australian situation, our incarceration rates, our death in custody rates are not anything particularly special compared to, say, New Zealand and Canada is kind of the point I was making. From the, You might have missed the early statistics sure. where I was running through did you get those statistics where I was running through incarceration no, rates? No, okay. So I, I took some time in the beginning to sort of explain that ballpark figures, uh, you know, percentage of Indigenous people in custody, um, if you compared us with New Zealand and Canada, were, were quite comparable. I mean, there's always ways of fudging statistics, as we've already seen, but uh, mm. that was sort of part of my argument was that the uh, the protesters, I think, when it comes to death in custodies, the the death rate of non-Indigenous is almost the same, slightly worse than the death rate for Indigenous once you're in custody. So your chances of being mm. in custody are higher, but once you're actually in jail, your chances of, of, of dying are, are no different effectively. And a lot of those yeah. deaths were through natural causes. So it was disingenuous to say there's 400 people have died in custody why haven't the police been charged when a lot of them were a, a natural death? Did, uh, are mm. you aware of those statistics before? Or? No, but I, that, I, that's a perfectly good um, point to make. And I, you know, uh, I guess what, the only uh, or the thing that's in the back of my head is there is a, I think it was a law report uh, podcast. They talked about two findings of systemic racism or implicit racism. Uh, and one was a, an Aboriginal woman who was going from Echuca down to Melbourne to visit her family um, and was sleeping on the train, I think because it was an early, you know, an early train or something like that, uh, and was... Uh, identified wrongly as being drunk, forced off the train, forced into custody, uh, had an accident in the cell or seems to have somehow had an accident. And despite the police saying that they should check the cells every 30 minutes, Mm. there wasn't a check within several, I think it was six hours, and by that time the lady had had this significant injury to her head and subsequently died of that. And it was the combination of the assumption that she was drunk, the the assumption that she would, you know, um, resist arrest, uh, a whole range of factors that sort of contributed to that. So I I still agree with your general point. And I would also add 
to your point there that we don't have the, uh, you know, a person that goes through uh, being incarcerated, you know, being a prisoner, comes back into society, if they have a, a reasonably good support network, that we don't have the sort of systemic punishments that they do in the US where once you've been to prison, basically there's a whole raft of jobs that you cannot get mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um and all of those sort of background and character checks kind of end up excluding you from from things. So, you know, yeah, I would say that we don't have the same kind of problem um, that we that the US does. Uh, you know, compared with our peers, we're probably about average. Did you attend right? a protest at all, Paul? Did you? Or, or? You don't have to no. answer if you don't want to. That's all right. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I'm just curious um, if you did as to what reason it would have been, but, yeah, so. And um, did you get COVID-19? <laughs> right. Ah. <No. laughs> well, we were, di- we were discussing that and saying uh, it would be very interesting to see if no one comes out of that with COVID-19, then well, maybe you were making the point in the last episode that, uh, well, it would be a really good argument for, you know, reducing the, um, the restrictions if, you know, we can have a rally like that and mm. no one gets COVID-19. So I know you're particularly sympathetic to the Indigenous cause. Would that be kind on, of, on yeah. a spec? Yep. Yeah. And, and so does it disappoint you that – did you watch Q&A? No. Okay. Did, no. Does it disappoint you that culture is not mentioned more often in terms of the, the problem in – Indigenous society does it does it do you feel that that this internal problem of culture doesn't get spoken about enough or do you feel it does and we don't hear it I I don't know because I don't hear I haven't heard that kind of characterization of the culture um I've heard other discussions of Aboriginal culture, which have been really positive about uh, things like their their Aboriginal sort of knowledge of the sky and uh, of navigation and landmarks being a a real, having a lot of potential scientific input into our understanding understanding of Australia. but, but, but given, I, but I would say to answer your question, I would say that yes, we we all need to look at the culture that we come from and ask ourselves: Do we want to keep on doing those things? Is that right? You know, it's it's it should be no more right to say, well, you know, I hit her over the head because that's my tribal culture, then it is that it would be to say I hit her over the, the head because I'm an Irishman, you know, or I, I hit her over the head because that's what the Catholic Church taught me or something like that. You know? mm. There's an incident recently in Papua New Guinea just the other day where uh, one of the Olympic athletes, female, was beaten up and there's sort of video evidence of her husband attacking her with a with an iron. Yeah, and, mm. a hot and there, one. And there was a lot mm. of sort of online comments by... Uh, male PNG guys saying, "Well, disciplining your wife is 
part of what you do. Like that, that was an example of a bad cultural practice that that was going on there. And it's probably not that long ago that yep. that was normal in European society. Yes. So mm. I guess the theme of the episode is that um, if you're going to accept cultures are different and you have to because they are, you'll have to accept that some aspects are beneficial in some areas. Mm. And if that's the case, they must almost certainly be some areas where they are detrimental and mm. and looking at the Australian example, it would just seem obvious that there are some detrimental aspects of Indigenous society that are not openly discussed and dealt with. Um, and what about the fact that in recent that, years yeah. people on the left have been talking about toxic masculinity? Mm. Now, every, everything I've read in this book about violence in Indigenous communities uh, it wasn't all the men, by the way. Mm. There was also a custom, at least in one community, where if a uh, if there was trouble between two couples, uh, the wife could potentially attack the wife of the other guy. You know, there might be oh, right. trouble between to two sort out men. The couples' differences. Yeah, right. there might be trouble between two men. Right, and uh, one woman could potentially attack the wife of the other man, even though she wasn't personally involved in initiating the problem. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Paul, you sound like you wanted to say mm. something before after my little monologue there. Or, no, or... Um, it's gone from my head now. Okay. So, so do you have any major issues with what, we've, what, with what you've heard from us? No. Oh, right, I, okay. I right. think you, I, I, I guess I what I would say there is just that I I tend to apply that to all people and all situations. I I think it's important for Aboriginal people to think about the the good things of their culture that they want to keep, the good things of other cultures that they want to import. Um, Just as I think a lot of Anglo-Australians, if I can use the term, um, maybe should be a bit more proud of our uh, Aboriginal cultures and their their art, their history, their poems, their stories, um, and be more willing to stick up for it. Mm-hmm. You know, to like, I feel like sometimes when you're overseas, uh, there's this kind of weird cultural cringe of people don't want to mention anything to do with you know, the Aboriginal flag or, you know, um, boomerangs or things like that, just in in case it's kind of culturally sensitive. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. Mm. I think there's a recent case with one of the mining companies seemingly destroying a 40,000-year-old cave system or something. And I think pretty much everybody, white, black or yellow, went, what? The hell. Yeah, it was like appalling. That, yeah, yeah. So there is that yeah. level of appreciation, at least. I think that was pretty it, unanimous where it was vandalism. Nobody wasn't it? thought that was On acceptable. Yes. Yeah. So all right. And as far as I can tell, Rio Tinto has gone, Yep, suck it. They haven't cared in one whit. Yes. Didn't do anything to their share price. Mm. No. Yep. Yep. They went through the public apology ritual as yes. everyone does. 
Yeah. But really, they've lost nothing. Mm. I also, just on that little, sorry if you wanted to wrap up here. No, no, okay. Just on that one little thing, I have heard uh, interesting stories of some of the mining companies, especially in Western Australia, playing parts of different cultural groups off against each other. So they'll get one group uh, and promise them lots of money for, you know, if they can mine in their land or something like that and we'll, you know, we'll preserve all your artefacts and we'll, you know, give you schools and all that sort of stuff. And then that group ends up kind of fighting the battle against the other people in the, the group who might have just as much claim to the land. Yep, um, divide now, and conquer. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm. Doesn't surprise me in the least. Doesn't surprise us in the least. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yep. All right, Paul. Well, that was good of you to join us. Thank you. It's good to see it's you. I, I didn't put your face up on you. the on the video, so we just got the audio. So um so that's good. That's um all right. Well, um, Paul, we might wind it up because I think we'll just keep it to this one topic rather yep. than the, with the sort of shit fuckery that the Morrison government's been up to <laughs> later. I'll just reserve that I for hope, another time. I hope from your use of that term that you listen to um, uh, the Juice Media podcast. I, I don't listen Some, to it. I sometimes see their videos, the but videos, I, don't, yeah. I don't listen to it all the time. It's it's sometimes a little bit too much for me, Paul. That one, but um, it is. Um, uh, yeah. The the podcast is um, Bruno Giordano talking to people, and it's a really it's. I think you'd enjoy it because it's really honest, upfront, calling out the shit fuckery when it occurs, right, uh, and how what it looks like, and really sort of talking to to people. Without all of the nice, you know, diplom- you know, being diplomatic, right? Um, hearing hearing Naomi Klein swear about you know the state of politics in the US uh, is just a joy to behold. So okay, well, if, if Naomi Klein's it on out. it, then I'll then I'll definitely listen. But he's getting away with murder. I mean, his approval rating is sky high. <laughs> It's mm. frightening. So, um, yeah. all right. Well, well to, to Paul, uh, who's joined us on Zoom, to Paul, who's in front of me here, uh, to you, dear listener, hope you enjoyed that one. We'll be back next week with something else. So, bye for now. Bye, bye everyone. Right. Fist, blow, 12th man, hard bottom here. It's been brought to my attention that I need to set the record straight about two claims that have been made on that podcast of yours. The first is this one. Don't be nice. Yeah. He could just start my, my brother Landon Harbottom. He started. I reject categorically that I am in any way related to that glove fellow. We have absolutely nothing in common, and I honestly believe that that sort of stuff gives your listeners the irrits as much as it gives me the irrits. The second is this. From, from Landon's point of view, I'm sure this child is just another tax deduction. <laughs> I find that deeply offensive. The mere suggestion that I would ever pay taxes is unimaginable. Retribution? Put your brother vengeance down. I don't care if you are preparing to subdue the masses. Besides... I've told you we're going to use religion and reality TV to achieve that.
Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.